All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio, a podcast that dives into all things athletics. On this episode, we sit down with Andrew Rafferty. He's currently the SNC coach at Clinton High School in Clinton, Mississippi. He's a member of the NHS SCA and serves on the Mississippi Advisory Board. He was also voted the 2023 NHS SCA State Coach of the Year. So we're really sitting here with a legend today as we continue to build his reputation uh, with another podcast with us. Welcome on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So before we uh, kind of get into it here, Raf, let's just talk about, man, who, who's who been your biggest uh, strength and conditioning or any coach kind of influences as we go here? That way we can kind of get a idea of your lens and, and the way you think about training. Yeah, so um, I went a non-traditional route to be coming into this field because uh, didn't really know it was a field per se. Uh, grew up playing baseball, went to college, graduated from college, so I was going to be a teacher and a coach. Started coaching baseball and realized that I wanted something a little different. Uh, I was looking at getting my master's originally, just going to get my master's in history, which was what I was teaching at the time, uh, just to get a little pay increase as a teacher. But then I started thinking, like, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life and coach baseball? And uh, I got into it and I started realizing the part that I loved the most was our training and helping our athletes there. Uh, so I looked into uh, getting my master's in exercise science, ended up going that route. Uh, then finally worked that into the school that I was at in Clinton into a strength and conditioning position. So I've relied a lot on things I've read and videos I've watched. Um, probably a couple of my biggest influences early on because I was so specialized with baseball would be uh, Zach Dakin, uh, just watching his stuff from afar and learning it. And then also uh, Eric Cressy, uh, just all the work that he does with baseball. Um, I do see a big big flaw with a bunch of lower level coaches like high school level coaches when they see stuff that Cressy puts out and they try to implement it with their athletes because he's working with elite of elite that need very fine-tuned things whereas we have a more general and have to make certain our kids are mastering movements a little bit more but that's something I can get into a little bit later so a couple of those guys and then um also as of now a more personal uh influences that I have that actually guys I talk to and get to bounce ideas off of. Uh, I'll double down on what Tyler Franklin said last uh, podcast that y'all did with uh, our uh, nice little group message, Ross, that we have going with about 14 or so of us coaches uh, that work at various high schools across uh, the Southeast, I think. Um, that's been a huge influence and just seeing what all y'all and some of the other guys on there are doing that's helped out a whole lot just trying to learn learn as i as i grow in this field um but yeah so the main things was a lot of my books videos but uh two of the big ones early on were uh, dakin and uh cressy okay i like that man that's uh of course at some point we've all gone down either of those rabbit holes uh with those two guys whether it's you know we're doing foundational training or rotational stuff uh two good guys to learn from uh before i pass it over to blair here and we can get get into his questions uh, talk to us a little bit. H how long have you been in Clinton? Uh, so I've been in Clinton for, this is my eighth year in Clinton. Uh, this is my third year doing strictly SNC. So my first five years, I was a baseball coach. Um, I realized I was a very average baseball coach. Things didn't, I knew what to do. I played it, played it at a very a rather high level successfully, but the translation to coaching it and picking up on the finer things to help a kid wasn't always there. But then when I get into the weight room, I noticed 
I can pick up, I can communicate better with these kids. I can get them to learn what I'm trying to tell them to do. And then when they're working rotationally and some things that we try to look for in a baseball swing, I'm able to pick up really easily with a medicine ball or with another implement to make certain that it's sequencing correctly. Something that I struggled with a little bit, which was funny when, uh, when they're actually swinging in a game and stuff like that. I was like, but I see it so clearly here. Now, but that's also helped my coach's eye when I'm watching some of our baseball kids play now, which is kind of cool. So as you've built up your program here since it's third year doing it full go, what's been kind of your process to really onboard players, onboard coaches, if, you, if you've got some new coaches and, and establishing your program and what you want to do? Yeah, so um, establishing my program. So Luckily for me, although our school, we are a uh, 7A school in Mississippi, which is not the same thing as a 6A or 7A school in Texas. I'm not certain how high up y'all go to, but we're looking at uh, anywhere from 350 to 450 kids per class. So we got 9 through 12, 16 to 1,800 kids, give or take a few. Um, But that's not athletes. That's total student body. Um, But for it being some of that big Clinton's a great just community. And like, we all know each other. It's like, you know, we got a lot of large population. It's kind of got a little small town feel to it. So I had a pretty good relationship with most of the coaches, um, uh, outside of the baseball staff. So when I transitioned over, um, I started just reaching out to coaches. Hey, I'd love to help you out whatever way you think uh, I can. And so the first year uh, that I got that started, um, Base our baseball team, our softball team, and our boys and girls soccer teams were probably my four uh, biggest teams that came on. Uh, the both of our soccer coaches they were all about it from the start. Like they were probably two of the most bought in people. Um, they they loved it. They wanted their kids to get better. They saw value in it, and because they saw value in it, that helped me win over some of those players. Um, a lot of the baseball kids it was easier with uh, just because I'd known most of them since they were in the seventh grade in some capacity. Uh, when I was coaching baseball, I worked all the way from our junior high through our varsity. Um, so a lot of those kids had been around me in a weight room or on a field setting for three to four years. Uh, so that that's a, it was an easier on-ramp. Uh, but then once I got that first year going, uh, showing the coaches that I cared about their team, um, and how their kids developed and were able to help them out on the field. Because uh, I make it real apparent that I don't, I mean, quite frankly, one rep maxes to me aren't the most important thing. Um, I tell our kids a lot of the times, like, hey, we're not going to go out on the soccer field and at midfield will there be a squat rack and whoever throws up the highest total, their team wins. Like, that just, sports aren't one there. I want to do stuff in here that's going to help make you better out there. And once I got the coaches, once the coaches started seeing that, and then once the players started seeing how they performed on the field, that made them enjoy it more. Uh, so we had a lot of success that first year with those four programs. Uh, our girls' soccer team played for the state championship and lost. Our boys' soccer team won the state championship. And then that season for both of those teams combined, we had one player miss one game due to injury. Um, and so we're talking 44 games combined and only missing one out of 40 athletes combined on both teams. And as soon as that happened, our volleyball program and our tennis program and our golf program also all wanted to get on board. Um, and so when I get new athletes, new coaches, I want to, sh- 
I sit down, talk to them, and ask them, like, hey, what, what do you see? What do you want to see with your kids? Uh, where are areas you're struggling? Uh, kind of listen to what they say, try to get the sport coach answer out of them, and then kind of interpret to what that actually means. Like, oh, we want to be bigger, faster, stronger. But yeah, every, everybody wants to be bigger, faster, stronger. Like, let's break that down. And then I present to them, like, this is what I think can help us out the best. Um, this is how I think we can grow. This is this will be our plan of attack with these kids. Um, first, first year kids is all real simple, just basic. I keep it as basic as possible with a linear progression through most of it, just getting them used to being how, how moving correctly. Um, now, since my first year there, I currently like part of my job. I'm a PE teacher at our junior high. So I see our junior high boy athletes, uh, they all have their junior high sports second block of our day. So if they're not in season or if they're not practicing, I get to go ahead and start working with them. And so that's helped me take full control of our junior high kids and start them in seventh grade, see them again in eighth grade. Then by the time they're at our varsity program, they're ready to roll. Because right now I have out of all of our programs pretty much there's maybe one or two new kids that have never seen me or been around me when they enter our varsity teams. And so they've already had a foundation laid. So I don't have to spend a lot of time with them or with a larger group of them. Most of them know the expectations, know the standards, know what we're trying to do. So they allow me to work with those two or three new athletes. Um, and then another way that I do my summers, uh, just because I have the time to do it and I enjoy it, I break my summers up where each team has their own training block uh, of time. Uh, it does. It can make some of my days a little bit long, but I'm not a person who likes to just sit around over the summer. I get I get bored real easily. I got to move around, and if I'm going to move around, I want to do it with people. And so that helped out. That helps out a whole lot because once we get in school, I'm seeing kids in much larger groups, 80 kids a session for some sessions. And it allows me to know they know what the baseline is. I don't have to introduce as many new movements. I try to keep my introduction and in new movements or movements we might see later on in the summer. That way they can get a good base of it so that when we are training in the school year, I'm not having to sit there and explain eight different times. Hey, this is what this means. This is what this means. Instead, it's them going. It's just kind of reestablishing what we're doing instead of teaching from square one. Or it's just like a little building block. So that's what I've done. That's uh, been really helpful for our programs. How, uh, the first off, doing the teams individually in the summer is a uh, that's a task right there, because I know for speaking from at least in Texas here, man, that would be an absolute bear mm -hmm. uh, trying to do the teams individually. Um, I'm not going to do that. You know, football is <laughs> going to get their own time, but yeah. uh, the the high school boys and high school girls will have their have their slots. But man, I. Doing the teams at once is definitely good if you get the turnout. Mm -hmm. You know, if you got the turnout and you got the kids coming, that's definitely a great a great way to do it. Uh, last thing I'll ask, and then I'll pass it over to Blair here. With your scheduling during the year, and this is something I, I like asking coaches. How do you kind of balance making sure you get the the right touch points and you get enough time with each team, whether they're in season, off season? Kind of how does that scheduling work for you guys? Yeah, so. Um most of the time, once uh, school starts, based on us not having a block for strength conditioning, which is something that we are working on, hopefully near future. Uh, but 
Once school starts, our athletic blocks for our varsity teams are at the end of the day, so it's fourth block. We're on an A-B schedule, so kids go to four blocks a day. Um, team varsity sports is double block, so at the end of A and B day, they have their team sports. Um, and then also, I'm allotted a, a small amount of time after school that I can work with kids or before school. Um, so what I'll have happen Usually, most teams I work with is a twice per week year round, except for the summer where I get most teams for three days a week. Um, a lot of that is sport coach wishes, um, and then just how flexible they are with their practice time. Um, most team, like our baseball and our softball team, during the off season they'll they'll pick uh, two days after school where they come in for forty five minutes to an hour, um, just depending on what time they ended their practice. If I get the full hour, hour ten with them. It's more like a 45. My soccer teams, they are a little bit more easy to, to say, hey, we're going to come during our fourth block to you, um, which opens up a little bit more free space for our athletes because not as many teams are doing that. Um, so it's really just dependent upon the coach and that they're willing to sacrifice with their practice time. Um, but I'm pretty consistent with all of our teams uh, two days throughout. Uh, then, I mean, because the sports that I work with, they're all they're all multi-contest sports uh, per week. So once season gets here, um, based on our schedules, the, the thing that I like to do for them is to go a Wednesday after practice or a Wednesday if they're not practicing, and then a Sunday afternoon after church um, is usually the two days that we come and train uh, because usually our games are Tuesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Saturday. Or if you're baseball, softball, you might be playing Tuesday, Friday, Saturday. And so those two days typically work out the best for the coaches to get their athletes in um, just based on how their practice plans work. So that's usually once our season starts, that's when we'll go. And when they're in season, I can see them whenever uh, there's no real restrictions by our uh, activities association in season. Um, so that helps out for that. And some days like with our soccer coaches, they'll text me, hey, we, we good to come in these two days this week. I'll be like, yeah, or sure, that sounds great. And then they'll say something comes up. We had some weather change or we had a game get moved. Hey, we're actually going to move it to this day this week. And so it's a kind of constant flux, but whatever works best for them. And we kind of just sit down and talk to it based on their schedule once it gets in season. I just want to build off that for a second. Andrew, do you, are you seeing a lot of multi-sport athletes or a lot of athletes that are training with the same team year-round? Or how's, how does that look for you? Um, so – so with our school size, um, I would say we have three to four athletes per team that would play a second sport. Um, like we got two or three baseball, football guys, um, three or four soccer and baseball guys. Uh, our girls soccer team, they're pretty much all one sport. Um, Softball teams pretty much are they're pretty much all one sport. Now we'll have a few of our soccer girls that run track. Um, a bunch of our handful of our football guys will either do throws or sprints for our track team. Um, but so a thing about thing I've learned about soccer is it is played at different times of the year in every state uh, because uh, soccer for Mississippi we're a winter sport. Uh, we just started our playoffs on Tuesday. Um, so we're at the back end of that. And then I know some, some states where it's a spring sport, some states where it's a fall sport, but soccer is a winter sport for, for us. So that's like, we have a rare kid that has done football, soccer, baseball, 
for the first two years of his high school. And then he realized I can't, it's hard to do all three at this size of a school because he's not getting any practice time with the other. So typically uh, very few seldom cases do I have of multi-sport athletes that roll over. Um, but the ones that I do, usually the fall will always be like their true off season because they're usually a soccer baseball kid that I work with. So I get kind of that months of July to September to kind of give them an off season. But from October to July, they're pretty much in an in season type program because with our baseball kids, I kind of keep them in an in season type model over the summer because yeah. they don't stop playing baseball ever. Because the South has, like, even they could probably go out and play in December if they wanted to. Thank God they don't. But the weather just allows for them to always play. So I, I pretty much plan for June and July to be an extended season for most of these kids, even though they might not be playing on the same team or whatever travel teams they're playing on, because I'm just not going to add that much stress to their body when they're playing five games yeah, a week. Yeah, I hear you there. I, I run into uh, the struggle at, at my school. We have a kind of like a two it's loose but a two sport requirement so a lot of our athletes are playing multiple sports okay and then on top of that they have their club sports that they go to so our basketball kids when they're not in the high school season it's aau the rest of the year and they're traveling and so they're not getting a real off season at all and our lacrosse <laughs> lacrosse that, that, kids that, are the same it's like it, even in the winter okay. they're doing it inside and uh you know all summer long and so getting training like consistent throughout the year has been has been a battle and uh it's a bear but um moving on from that i had some awesome questions and i wanted to talk to you you mentioned being a subpar baseball coach um which i don't necessarily believe but um but you said that you improved your coach's eye as you were working more in the strength and conditioning realm, I believe. And so I wanted to touch on that. What mm -hmm. do you think it was that when you moved uh, the positions there, improved your coach's eye? Uh, I think what it was, was I was so used to doing and playing the sport that it just took me a while to see it, translate it, and be able to give it back to a kid. Um, cause there's always an image in my mind, what it, what it looks like, what it looks like, what it looks like. And it, it kind of fogged when I was looking at the sport happening. And I think that's something that would have naturally improved it as I continued doing that. But then when I got into the weight room, it was movements that I, that I'd done. I've seen people do, I been around. And then when I started, when we started getting into our medicine ball stuff, like I'm able to break down the athlete a lot better because I'm not worried about them, how they are at contact or how they are in their stance or in their load or what's going on in their head based on what the pitcher's doing. So all I'm looking at is how is your body moving? And because all I'm looking at is how's your body moving, not so much the mental aspect of the game of baseball. I feel like that allowed my eye to actually see what was going on because I guess going back a little bit more about, about that coach's eye, and in baseball, I was – when I played, I was a big thinker. Like, I could pick up on things that pitchers did to allow me to know what pitch they were throwing. Very cognizant of all that stuff. And so, as I was – as we were playing games and stuff like that, that was kind of where my mind was. So, I 
didn't have the full intent into our intention into watching small little things that might be going on at a practice or a game. But just being able to see an athlete, hey, your object is to throw this ball through the wall. This is what I want it to look like. And then just look at that because there is no thought process. You're not worried about what pitch is coming or anything like that. It's just a movement and seeing it as a movement allowed me to see it a lot better. That's awesome. Uh, I want to deep dive a little bit more into the med ball uh, realm. Come on. It's something that I love. I'm, I'm super, super interested in it. I love having my athletes uh, use med balls. I actually have a huge, uh, uh, what's the word, dilemma in my current situation because my fitness center has like six feet of wall space. And it's uh, poorly, poorly laid out. I have great, great sunlight. I've got a lot of windows and I have nowhere to throw med balls. Um, so I would love to hear more about how you're using them, when you're using them. And, uh, and, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, so whenever we're using medicine balls and if we're using them specifically like a rotational throw, uh, I group my athletes into two two groups of athletes. So I'll group them into rotational-based athletes and non-rotational-based athletes. So rotational-based athletes, baseball, softball, golf, tennis, uh, quarterbacks, I would put as a rotational athlete because of how you throw. Um, there's specific things in a kinematic sequence that we, we want to have happen. Then non-rotational athletes, soccer, basketball, volleyball, things where, yes, you do rotate because every movement you do is a rotation, but I'm not as concerned with the actual kinematic sequence as much with a rotational athlete, and I'll expand on that a little bit more. Um, so when I start with our medicine ball training, um, our medicine ball training, I usually, for our rotational athletes, I start our block, our big block, right after season. So right after postseason, where we're just kind of reintroducing kids to rotational throws. Um, and then so the first step that we do, our first step in our progression is just a half kneel scoop toss or shot foot. Um, also, I'll preface that by saying I've learned that everybody has different names for what they call medicine ball throws, um, more so than than your Olympic variations, where some people call a power clean when you catch it at the bottom and things like that. But um, so when I say a scoop toss, all I'm talking about is a arms extended rotational throw, shot put, hand up, just like a shot put, put more of a push through. Um, so we'll spend the first little bit on a half kneel stance. So in my half kneel, my leg that's closest to the wall is up, uh, back leg is down. And so I start here and especially start here with our younger athletes because it allows me to feel my back hip rotate against my front hip um, because a big issue is that I see a lot of people do they're going to want that front hip to fly open immediately and if that front hip flies open immediately my shoulder is going to fly open immediately and if I'm trying to hit something or swing something I'm going to pull and roll over it so we're going to keep that hip locked and then it also allows the athlete to stay tall and not fall into the wall um, so that's that's where we'll start with that I usually um, – that will be in there for anywhere for three to four weeks. Um, then we'll go into a bilateral stance. Um, so that's what I would call a post-stride stance uh, for my rotational athletes. Um, so feet would be outside of shoulder-width apart or wherever. So for my baseball kids, the way I tell get them to find their post-stride, I get them in their stance, 
Okay, go ahead, stride and swing. Awesome. Okay, that's where I want you, where your foot landed. That's where I want because I want to replicate it. Or if a coach comes up and tells me, hey, we're widening out such a Johnny. Johnny's a little bit wider in his stance. So I know that when he comes to me, if we're doing a rotational throw, I'm going to give him a little bit wider in his stance. So he's actually feeling that to work through it. Um, so we'll go to a bilateral stance. And then after we work through the bilateral stance or post stride stance, we will then go into athletic movements. Um, and so what I mean by athletic movements, that might be a shuffle into a throw, a receive and throw, a step back and throw, pretty much just get the athlete moving. Um, then the way that I determine when an athlete's ready for that, I mean, I use a basic four to six, three to six week stretch to say like, hey, by this time I want them to be here. But for my rotational guys, as soon as I see their sequencing break down or their technique look like crap, it's when we'll back and back off. So when I'm talking about sequencing or the kinematic sequence, uh, it talks about how we're supposed to rotate. So when I rotate, I want my back knee and back hip to fire first, then my torso, then my arms, and then the implement I'm swinging. A lot of times when people start doing medicine ball throws, a big thing I see that's wrong with it is they'll get a really heavy medicine ball throw. Medicine ball, like a 20-pound medicine ball, 15-pound medicine ball, 10-pound medicine ball. And as they go to throw, their arms are starting their swing. And so now we've completely messed up the sequence. Um, I know there's a lot about like in strength issue, we're talking about sports specific and we're not trying to copy the sport in the weight room rotational throws for like a baseball or softball player is one area where I think it's, you, you kind of need to, because I'm not going to do something that's going to work against what their coach is teaching them to do. Um, so the first thing I'm looking at is, are we sequencing correctly? And then the next part that goes along with the technique is, am I getting a lead leg block? So all that is, is as I'm going to attack, I'm just going to stand up here because I always like to explain this as I talk a little bit more. So as I'm going to attack, I think it will be like this front leg for me, as I go, it's going to firm up and lock to help my back hip create torque as I go through. Okay. Cause I want to feel my back knee driving through my front calf. Um, so I've got to make certain a lot of kids, especially my young kids, when they go, they're going to get here and that knee's just going to keep coming on out. Okay. So, that's a big issue. And so that's usually also going to be something that hinders me from moving them forward uh, and progressing on because I've got to help fix that issue. Um, that's the typical progressions of the movements that I'll do are things that I look at when I'm determining when to progress. As far as weights are concerned, like the weightage of the ball, um, I have medicine balls all the way from two pounds to 10 pounds um, and I got a couple heavier, but I don't use those for rotational throws. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll start two pounds. I'll do a, pretty much a linear progression, two, four, six, eight. Then we'll work. Then we'll go start over again, two, four, six, eight. And then once I get enough of them after about eight weeks, I'll um, get a radar gun on them, a pocket radar, borrow one from our baseball team. See, record their speeds. What was their speed at two pound, four pound, six pound, eight pound. Um, then at the end of the next eight week cycle, I'll look at it again. If their, if their strength ones, so if the eight pound increased at a greater percentage than their the two pound one, 
I know that they have a speed deficit, that they are more of a muscle-bound or a strength-bound athlete. So I'm going to start having them, when we do medicine ball throws, they're going to do the lighter throws. And then the inverse is true for my guys that their speed increased more with the two-pound than the eight-pound, like a significant increase. Like if it's just like a couple, little, little bit, and they're going to keep staying with as is. But if the two-pound increased by 10% and the eight-pound increased by like 2% on their speed, I'm going to go ahead and, okay, so your strength is your limiting factor. I'm going to have you throw a little bit more heavier balls, okay, to help kind of bridge that gap to kind of make the athlete a little bit more balanced. Um, so that's usually how I just determine the weight as well. So technique and then the speed technique into a linear progression of uh, essentially of weight. And then I'll get a little bit more technical with it and look at the velocity comparisons. Man, I think the lighter med balls are so underrated because it's oh, just like them. anything else. Like kids think like heavier is better and the heavier med ball I pick up, the better it's going to be but it's really the worse it looks because uh, for, for me, I inherited a gym with 20 pound med balls, 10 pound med balls, and like two or three, six pound med balls, but they're like the bouncy ones or the slam balls. And they like, I'm in a tough spot med ball wise. And, uh, yeah. I would absolutely kill for a couple, like were they the Dynamax or even, uh, so we got the uh, the perform, perform better, better. Yeah, yeah, stream yeah. soft toss. Those those things can take an absolute beating, best. and I will never buy never buy another medicine ball that's not a perform better one. They just they go for days, yeah. and I'm also very grateful. The place that we that we train our Olympic sport athletes at it is our old high school field house, which is at our junior high. It is a warehouse from. A, quite old warehouse and there's a big open green space that's like 1995 AstroTurf <laughs> green carpet. Okay. We got seven double racks in there, but I do have, there's a second story on top in there, which the we don't use it for anything because the floor is a little bad, but there is just a bunch of a massive cinder block wall that is about, 15 yards wide yeah. and that we, that we, th I, I refer to it as our throwing wall. Um, there are a few center blocks that have been knocked in, which I got really excited when they did. Uh, it happened last year. Our shortstop in there, he kind of started knocking one in and he's like, coach, I'm going to break it. I said, no, you're not. I said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you can throw it through that one spot. Cause he had to hit it perfect that sucker comes up and just lets it go and hits right through and also bam. I was, I got so pumped. I was like, let's go. Cause he got so excited. He's like, I told you I was going to break the wall. It's like, you sure did. I'll go work on getting that fixed later. Raph, how are you measuring the speed of the med balls? Um, pocket radar. Okay. Cause Something. Kerr went through a period of, of wanting to measure the speed of med balls. Do you remember that player? Yep, I do. And we did not buy pocket radars. Uh, we bought stalkers, not, not the night. I, I don't remember what we bought, but it was it was like the Bushnell. Ah. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. And it, it was not the pocket radars, dude. And uh, do you do you have one of the? You just have one. Uh, the baseball team has like two or three, and so like I'll, okay. if, if I let them know, hey, I'm wanting to do this, they're pretty good about letting me borrow. It's like they're not using it for anything. Our our baseball team has a lot of nice 
technology toys that they've acquired in the eight years that I've been there. Um, so does ours. Like uh, they got a, a so, some rap soda machines, some, some pocket radar. They they got they they went all in, and we got most of it when I was coaching the, there when I was still doing baseball. But yeah, so they they they, uh, they have some stuff, and every now and then, if I if I give them enough notice and they remember, they'll let me borrow them when I need to. So, okay. So what, what are some of your, and I'm only asking this from using the, the, the Bushnell or Bushnell, what it Bushnell, uh, radars, what are your requirements as far as, okay, they throw the med ball and I'm, and I'm going to say that this is what you threw. Like you, do they have to do it a couple times? Is it one rep? Like what, what is uh, it? Usually it's a, like with anything, like with our, if we're doing it that day, like with any jump or sprint, like we're going to get two to three attempts and I'm going to take an average of those two to three, unless there's one glaring. Like if you, if you were doing like a measuring a 10 yard sprint and you were one, six, two, one, six, two, and you tripped and fell and ran a one, eight, I'm going to throw that one, eight out because like you, I saw you fall. Like, mm-hmm. so like, I would know that, Hey, you're around a one, six, two today. So that that's usually what I do is I'll just get an average of the three. Okay. So you said you're looking at the strength deficit there on your med ball. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at, and you may not be, I don't know. Are you looking at the strength deficit too with their sprinting or their jumping? Uh, and if it's the same or if it's different? I have not looked into to that. Um, so I'd be curious. I, I would too. That is actually probably the next project that I'm going to start looking at with that. So I appreciate you giving me that idea. <laughs> I had to give you something to do, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. No, um, but yeah, I, I haven't looked into comparing their deficits across different things. It's just been with that specific one. And that, I mean, I have other data on deficit stuff. It just, I haven't done anything to compare to. So do you think, uh, okay, since you're really tracking the miles per hour here, do you think there are any specific movements, not med ball movements, whether it's barbell movements or strength movements that you're seeing direct correlation of, Hey, this is improving our med ball throws. And then my, my follow-up to that is, do you think that because of the general global strength improvement, that is why the med ball is getting better? Or is it just from this movement, we're throwing med balls, we're getting better at it. Is it more the rotational aspect or do you think it's more of a, of a macro general strength improvement? Um, I'm going to go, the first thing would be a technical improvement with something like rotation. Um, because if it was just a general strength, uh, I mean, general strength does help. I think technical is where the biggest bang is, but then, um, I look at rotational power as being ex- an expression of force. Um, so you have to be able to technically express it correctly. Um, where the main driver of it would be your vertical force expression or vertical force capability. So typically if I see someone's vertical force capability going up, I know that their ability to rotate is going up as well or rotate officially rotate with more power because they are able to generate more. Um, that's, that, that's what I've seen. Uh, so typically, I mean, I guess we talk about the, the deficit sit with that, like my, my stronger guys, as they get to be able to move faster, that's what's going to have the carryover for their force production, ver- vertical force production, rotational force per- expression, my weaker guys, as they get stronger, my, my faster guys that might be a little bit weaker as they get stronger, that tends to help them out more. 
Um, and with guys in baseball, watching kids play baseball or softball, it's really easy to see which guys are the muscle bound guys and some like that everything's just stiff in them. Like we have a couple of kids that I have to talk to constantly about opening them up and getting them a little bit more mobile because they like to live in gyms after school, which I'm cool with them. I love that they want to, to train and want to work out, but it's high school kids don't always do the smartest things. And yeah, they're strong, but when they try to swing or try to rotate, it just looks atrocious. And I constantly have to talk to them about, hey, this is what we need to do. If you want to be an athlete, these are some of the changes we have to make. If you just want to be big and strong, then hey, keep going. But if we want to be an athlete, we got to start being able to take some of this stuff and apply it elsewhere instead of just seeing how big we are and how muscle bound we can be. So, oh, Ross, you got something? You're good, buddy. Right. Keep going. So outside of the med ball work, are you including any other rotational work? Yeah. So um, rotational stuff, like we'll do a bunch of rotational landmine presses. Um, we got some uh, what's that straps, some 3D straps that we will use. Uh, those mainly get used uh, during season uh, as a way to easily uh, train the rotational aspect. Um, going into a little bit of that – once in season starts for my rotational athletes, we cut out high intense medicine ball throws. Uh, the reason for that is their practice level, just volume, just doubled essentially. The amount of swings, the amount of throws, the amount of rotation they're putting on their body has gone through the roof. I'm not going to add stress, add to that bucket that's already been filled at practice by having them throw a medicine ball 12 to 16 times. Um, so, once the season gets here, we'll go into a bunch of anti-rotation. Um, typically, in an off-season, we're going to pair rotation and anti-rotation um, uh, movements together during whatever cycle we're doing. Um, because I've, there's been a growing uh, – there's been a lot more L5 stress and pars fractures around this area and baseball kids, young baseball kids, because they spend so much time swinging and rotating at a very high velocity that they don't have the strength to withstand it because these parents, they'll pay ungodly amounts of money for them to go off and be on these travel teams, pay, and but they won't actually invest in them as a athlete and get them to strong enough to actually produce on the field and so their back and their core really suffer. So when we get to the season, I cut out our rotational throws. We'll go to a heavy, a higher volume of anti-rotation just to kind of help prevent any injuries from overuse. Um, there's some people that <clears throat> will say, well, what, why don't you just do um, offhanded? Um, if I'm left-hand, throw the medicine ball right-handed. Well, if, once again, if I'm only doing 16 rotational throws, after practice on my offhand, I just took 300 cuts. That math doesn't math. Like, like, I mean, I just feel like we're, we're wasting our time and we're like not actually getting anything through. Now we will in the early preseason, like right now, like a bunch of our rotation stuff, I will have it to where they do a decelerate component to it where we'll do a shuffle scoop toss, but I don't let go of the ball and I stop at it in extension um, just to help them train those muscles to decelerate. Um, and kind of take off that final little bit of rotation. But, yeah, so we use some other implements. I would love um, – I wish I had uh, money that your your buddy Kerr at Liberty had and have a few uh, Proteus arms 
um, those and some Kaiser machines. Like I, I, I see all the, the big thing like with all the shred mills. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd love to have a shred mill. I would love to. I think that would help out a lot more of my athletes than if I had a Proteus arm. But I would love to have one of those arms just to play around with and see all the cool stuff that it can do for rotational athletes. Um, but yeah, so a lot of it's getting creative um, because as a high school coach, some of the resources we have are limited. Um, so figuring ways I can expose my athletes to what they need to be successful in an efficient way. Awesome. Ross, what do you got? All right. Going to shift. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, actually, not before we shift gears, you talked about the, uh, it's the, what's that strap? Cause I've actually never heard of that. Yeah. I, was yeah. Those. I like those. Um, yeah, one second. There's one right behind me. So, yeah, so it's just a 3D strap. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the 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 people who make it they're called what's that, and so I, I use I use those a lot um, for our to just control rotation uh, more of a way to add a little bit of banded resistance to them. To where once they it'll attach up around their shoulder, the I, I use it in a very basic way. There's a lot of other stuff that I could use with it. However, I try to look at the amount of stuff I throw at my athletes that are new, and I want them to get good at what we're doing. Um, so I don't throw too many of these movements at them. Uh, the main thing we do is we would just get in a post drive stance, feel our hip and shoulder separate as we rotate. So essentially, my back hip is rotating while I'm keeping my front shoulder closed and then nice and resist as long as I can that band pulling me back. Um, that's, that's how we, use, that's the majority of how we use those. Um, but I mean, I'll also use them for things like when we do banded jumps around the waist or if we're doing any type of, uh, it, I can have it be used for, uh, some isometric stuff. Um, but I, I find ways to use it. Now, the only way for rotation, that's how we use it. But there's other uses that, that we get in with it. Okay. I like that. I get a little bit of that. I use some of the jammers we've got. And I'll, I'll have them bring it out to the chest. And then they've got to drop back inside mm-hmm. and then rotate back up. So you get a little bit of that internal. So mm-hmm. I, I like that. So to, to shift gears here, um, you talked a little bit about trans soccer. And, you know, they've been bought in for you uh, with your program. And you kind of find different places, you know, soccer is very hit or miss. You either, I feel like you either get a hundred percent all in, man, they love it. Or you kind of get the the polar opposite. So what do you think for those coaches? And it sounds like historically they've been pretty successful. What is the, the value that they preach as far as that, that you're bringing to the table for their program? Uh, well, so I guess it, it, it's, it's twofold. Um, the first thing, uh, first thing is us being healthy. Um, them seeing us be so healthy throughout that first year, and us not having any any injuries to take us out of games, um, that allowed the players to really see um, the benefit of it. Because the coaches, I, I'm very fortunate for the two soccer coaches I get to to work with. They're probably two of my best relationships that I have with coaches. Um, they're all about it. Um, this upcoming year, we're going to be doing some things differently just because we're going to have a completely different team than we've had, uh, for both our boys and girls team. And they just kind of talking through with them and they're all about it. Uh, the big thing that helped at the beginning. So the first time that I met these kids 
was both of the coaches already knew that they were completely about it. And they preached to their team before they even saw me that, hey, this is something that is going to be beneficial for us and for our goals. And so that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, they're two coaches that if their team's training, they're going to be at the training. Uh, they're going to be around their kids. Um, so early on, that helped because it allowed them to see that it wasn't something to be taken lightly. Um, it was one of the one of the teams that made it more of a requirement uh, than kind of like, hey, we, we're doing this um, if you can. Because I have some teams that are kind of like voluntarily like, hey, like this is when our team's training. And it's like, cool, here's three of y'all. Awesome. Um, but no, they, they started off. And then the boys was different than the girls getting bought in. Um, the boys after – so my first year with them – we win our we win the state championship. That that helped. Then after that, the next year they really fully took on the fact that they were able that they were faster and they were more resilient than people. Um, a funny story: one of our soccer kids, their first game last year, not this season, but last season, first game, one of the kids, one of the captains comes up to me after the game and goes, "Coach, we won." I said, "I know, I saw that we won." He said, "Coach, we were we dominated them." Physically, I was like, okay. He's like, no, 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 no. We broke one of their collarbones. It's like, all right, okay. They play their next game. He comes up to me, goes, Coach, hey, that's two for two. I said, I know we got two wins. He says, no, Coach, it's two collarbones. I was like, oh my God. But they know, um, but then, like, they also know that I am going to be their biggest fan. Um, but every team that I work with, I'm going to try to show up for them at their games because I know that training and being in a weight room, that's what I love. That's what we as coaches, as strength coaches love. Not every player is going to love it. They love their game. So being able to relate to the player, I feel like that's one thing as a coach I do very well is building relationships with my athletes um, and getting to know them because once they see that I care about them more than just an athlete or just someone lifting weights, it makes them work harder for me because they know that like, and having conversation with them, like and seeing like what their goals are and where they want to be and then telling them, Hey, this is how I'm going to help you get there. It helps that. Um, but then like just showing up for them, like our girls, that has been the number one thing that has gotten our girls soccer team to buy in was their first year. Um, I do this for all my teams, but I can't make it to all the games for any of my teams uh, because I got three kids, wife, and job. I, I get to as many regular season games as I can, but if it is a playoff game and it's potentially one of our kids' last games, I'm going to be there. Uh, I'll drive. I'll get up there. I'm going to watch it because I want them to see me there. And that started, started two years ago. And then last year, our girls' soccer team, came up to me for their round one game, goes, hey, coach, you going to drive the bus? Sure, I'll drive the bus. Well, we end up winning that game, so we get home that night because it was a long drive. We were playing up in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is a four-hour drive from where we're at. And then so the next day, next game comes around, coach, you drive the bus? I mean, sure, I guess I'll drive the bus. And they kept asking me, and one time I was like, girls, Coach Rimmer can drive the bus, our soccer, he can drive the bus. And they're like, yeah, but – we win when you drive the bus. I said, yeah, but y'all won when he won, when he drove. It was like, but we haven't lost with you. It's like, all right, can't, can't fault that argument. <laughs> so I, so driving them around and they end up both our boys and girls last year, our boys repeated as state champions and our girls won it last year. 
Uh, we're in the thick of our in the thick of our hunt for a three-peat for the boys or a repeat for the girls. Uh, girls, tomorrow we'll go up north to Oxford, Mississippi, and I got a phone call as soon as it got moved to a Friday game. Co- co- coaches call me. I know that when the coach calls me during the middle of the day, there's a good chance it's a few of his players actually calling me. Um, and I answer the phone, and, it's a, and, of course, it's a group of the players. Coach, you driving us? What do you all think? Okay, well, we're just making sure. Yeah, and so so actually showing them that I care and things like that, like that has gone just a incredibly long way for getting them to come and work hard. And they are probably some of the hardest workers out of any team that I train. They come in, they fully trust me because they know that if they come in beat up, we're going to scrap what we're doing. We're going to do something to help them out. And then like not only does it, do, do they see that I'm doing that, they realize that, hey, they feel better. Um. And so, like, when I tell them, hey, girls, this is a day that we're pushing, okay, even if it's in the midst of our season, but we have a couple of extra days before we play again, I tell them, hey, we're pushing hard today. They get after it, and they have no problem throwing weight on the bar, no problem attacking it, bringing intensity. Um, it, it has been something remarkable to be around them uh, because once they found out that I was in it for them and not just to make them work out, light switch, that took about – I'd say that about to about midway through my first season with them when they realized, oh, okay. And so that flipped. And since then, they have been the group of hardest working girls that I've got. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the – especially when you first get on in a place, you know, when I'm getting here in Texas, you've got, you know, with high school, four to 500 athletes. And then middle school, you're looking at another 300-ish. And so it's really hard to build those relationships with that number, you know, because you got different times where you got a bunch of kids in there. And, and as, and as we've, we've been going with our system down here, I've gotten teams both in our huge groups and also in our small groups. And it's like, you're saying, man, it's, it's interesting when the kids finally get you in a small group and you're not uh, super stressed out because you're not trying to pump 120 kids through a daggone weight room. Like mm-hmm. it's a little different, you know, a little different interaction uh, and so when they get to know you a little bit and, and they see that, man, you're, you're there for something other than the weight room and it's performance and on field, man, it, it definitely makes a, makes a big difference. And so I think I know, I know your soccer team uses GPS, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Any of your other teams use it? No, I mean, soccer is really the only one like, based on the sports that I work with, because mm-hmm. at the end of, uh, end of last year, I was able to get some, make some purchases and that was one thing talking with both of our soccer coaches that they were like, they love it. They, they, they were all about it from the get go. They're like, yes, what do we need to do to make it happen? I said, well, let me talk to our superintendent and people and see what I need to do on our end. And so we ended up, ended up getting, getting a few units from Titan. Um, they've been great. Uh, but the, my, my caveat to our coaches before I even requested them was, Hey, if we get this data, if we get these, we need to use them for the data they give us. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, like the stuff that we learned from it, like what it's telling us about the games and how we practice, like we need to actually be willing to make changes. And they're both like, oh, of course. Like that's why we want them. I was like, yeah, there's cool things. And like, yes, I love after our games, I love looking at how our fastest runners and, and, and posting them. A couple of guys last night actually got on to me like, coach, how come you never put how to travel the furthest distance? I won that. I'm like, 
All right. I'll, I'll put that one out there next time for you. Okay. Cause I got a couple of midfielders that traveled like eight miles in, in a couple of games. They're like, coach, we want, we want that. I was like, all right. But um, so yeah, so they both got on board on that. Uh, this is with this being year one for all of us with them, we are using this year pretty much specifically for collecting data to look back at. We're not making any big changes to anything yet. Uh, just because we want to know that we fully understand what the data is telling us and to not make any rush decisions. Um, a couple of ways that we are using it this year like immediately is to make certain we are exposing ourselves to maximal sprints. Um, so I will, whenever I upload the sensors, I'll put it into a spreadsheet of each girl or each guy's max sprint over the past 30 days. And then I'll break it down to 95% and 90% increments. Like have they hit a 95% close? Have they gotten up to 90% and have they gotten up to 85% and looking at how close they've gotten to those speeds. So I know if it's by Thursday and Tom hasn't gotten into 85% of his top speed. Well, I know before practice, he needs to be pulled aside. He needs to get a couple of max effort sprints in just for hamstring integrity, if nothing else. Um, that's the easiest way that we've been using it. Now, just playing around and looking at it, uh, we, 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 we're getting a better idea of the chronic acute workload ratios. Um, that, that we've kind of used, played around with and used a little bit this year where we'll, we've held a couple of people out or re reduced some of their stuff if we noticed that they had a real high couple of days in a row. Um, and that seemed to have helped. But uh, a big thing that I'm looking forward to actually looking into is our acceleration deceleration counts um, and, and the speeds of which that they happen at, because I feel like we don't do as good of a job preparing for that aspect of the game of soccer, where soccer is just one gigantic change of direction game. And I feel like in our off season, we need to do a better job, especially on my end with them of actually getting us into some more change of direction and some high speed decelerations. Um, because I, I'm looking at some of them and we're getting some really top high decelerations that I know we're just not reaching in training. And I want to make sure that our athletes are prepared to handle that. So we don't have any injuries come up from that. So that's, that, that's what we're going to be looking at. And so starting as soon as the final game is, which is hopefully next Saturday will be their final games. Uh, not before then. Um, I'm going to really be taking a, a few weeks of really diving into all the data that we got from this year. So you looking at uh, from from working with soccer players and, and time and sprints and whatnot, I don't know what how Titan uh, displays this information. Do you see, okay, most of our soccer players hit that 85, 90, 95% velo around certain distances? You know, like most like most top speed for a lot of kids are going to be in that like 25, 35 mark. Um, in the past, I've seen like our soccer players accelerate better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be curious if they're hitting that a little earlier uh, rather than later compared to some athletes. Yeah. So some of our our fastest athletes from our soccer team, they're they're also like he just said, they're phenomenal accelerators. And they can usually get up to their top speed within that 20 to 25 yard range, maybe not as early as 15, but definitely in that 20 to 25. But then also they can hold it for a lot longer. 
like they can hold their top speed longer than some of my other athletes. Like when, when I just look at their day, like they can hold that, say he got up to 21 miles an hour. Well, he can extend that for 10 to 15 yards longer than one of my baseball kids has been able to do, which was mm-hmm. interesting to see just because their, their ability to go is a little bit different. So when you look at, well, when you do your, your sprint work that you're getting them the extra work in to make sure they get that top speed, are you, t- are you getting them out to like 40 or are you doing it shorter because they get to top speed sooner? I'm getting them out to 40 just because I want yeah. to make certain that we do like, like, are they hitting it before then? Probably, but yeah. I want to make, I don't want to leave any doubt that we got up to it. So we're going to get all the way through that 40. We're going to take our rest and then we're going to get another good 40 in just to make certain that we're ready to go. Okay. Yeah. It's that, it's that type of information, man. If you'll use it as a sport coach, man, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. Like you said, being able to take that information and, and apply it uh, is a huge thing with that GPS. Yeah. So, so with that, uh, I got two things left, at least okay. on my end. Uh, and I don't, I'm sure Blair might have something, but we'll see. What's the, what's the newest thing for you that you're into right now? Oh, the newest thing that I am into. I mean, right now, I, so I guess I, I left off of another big influence of mine, um, especially now as I'm getting more into programming and stuff and actually learning better how to program. Cause I mean, I feel like each year it just keeps getting better. I'm understanding more things and how to write stuff. Um, Cal Dietz and Triphasic, I love it with the majority of my athletes that aren't in our block zero. We will run some form of Triphasic in it. And uh, I heard, oh, I can't remember who it was on a podcast, but they were talking about running a track. I think it was on the Just Fly performance, but I can't remember who the guest was. But they were talking about using oscillatory reps during the isometric phase. And I, I looked into it. I knew that with my soccer teams, especially my my varsity group that that are our major contributors, they've had they're in their third year with me. We've ran through it, and I just decided, hey, we're going we're going to check this out a little bit. We got some pretty good results in speed and and vertical uh, broad jump increases and throughout that. So what we did was we would go three weeks of your eccentric, two weeks of an oscillatory instead of the isometric and then three weeks of concentric. And when they came back for those three weeks of concentric, the way that the bar was moving was incredible. And so I'm really taking a deep dive into oscillatory movements right now because they just fascinate me because it's something I've just never really looked into until I heard that. And it sounded like it made sense listening to the guy talk about it. And so then I researched a little bit. I tried it out myself uh, because I like being my own guinea pig. And then uh, I was like, all right, I feel good implementing with this group of guys. And we had great results. So I'm going to really be trying to look down that rabbit hole a little bit more. I think uh, I think you'll have to talk to Kerr about that because I'm pretty certain I recall him emailing Cal directly about that and using oscillatory mm-hmm. during the isometric phase. Um, so he would he would definitely know something about that and help you out. Yeah, there was a phase where we were all trying out the oscillatories and it was pretty gnarly. Like we were doing 20, 30 seconds. It was, oh. it was gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> but That's hey, it. my, 
after that period of time, like my muscle mass went up because we had an in body and it was like, it was <laughs> pretty, it was pretty sick. Not gonna lie. Pretty sick. Oh man. All right. Twenty thirty. story sounds terrible. That yeah. was terrible. Oh, I don't, I don't suggest it. I don't suggest it. Hey, uh, it wouldn't be the worst so, thing I've done. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> so, uh, last little thing here, man. Uh, cause you, you and George are the only two dudes that I know in Mississippi that are, that are coaching SNC. And, uh, you know, as we know, you know, the Southeast, you get some of these Midwestern, Midwestern States of Indiana, Illinois, those type of States, obviously Texas, you know, you know, we're pretty, pretty invested over here. What do you think it's going to take for schools in Mississippi to get a little more on board with either full-time or making sure they have the right people running weight rooms down there? Uh, man, that is a, it's a good question. Something that George and myself and a few other guys uh, consistently talk about. Cause I think we have, I think there's might be three other coaches at a public school and then five or six at a private school in Mississippi, which when we look around, we look at our state, the state that's most comparable to us is Alabama. Like in almost all things, Mississippi and Alabama are relatively comparable as states. Um, and we see just how much more advanced they are in this realm than us. And we're just like, the question we always ask is like, why is that? And I think we have a stigma around our, around our programs, around our, around some football programs where it's the way that it's always been done. And so this is the way that I trained when I was in high school. This is the way I trained when I was in college. So this is the right way. Um, and coaches that are just, I think a big thing with any coaches, with any coaching staff, there is a level of pride. Um, all coaches have pride. Um, some are more prideful than others. And I feel like a lot of times uh, that pride gets in the way of learning and growth. And so us being able to get our message out there and be able to understand like, hey, we're here to help take some of the weight off of the sport coaches. We're here to help them to where you can focus on your sport and we can focus on helping your athletes improve in speed and strength qualities. And like we can work together and it'll be all for the betterment of our athletes. And so I feel like there's a there's a limited uh, or there's people that just don't want to relinquish power. And then also um, funding, finding ways to actually fund it. Um, we have a lot of uh, I'm in a good situation where Clinton is the only school district in per Clinton public schools. Like we are the only school. We're the only high school. Um, I, I guess it's similar to what I think Texas called independent school districts. Is that kind of yep. how, what, what that means? I'm guessing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but we also have a whole lot of county school districts. We're talking seven or eight schools in the district, uh, high schools. And in district schools, if, you, if one school has something, there has to be a plan in place for each of those other schools to get it. Like if we were in a school district of five, five high schools, and my high school got turf, well, then on their football field, well, then the next year there would need to be a plan for Ross's high school, for Blair's high school in a couple of years until everyone had the same thing. So a lot of it is like, hey, if one school has it in our county, a strength coach, well, then we need to have a plan in place for how each of these other schools. Now, one of the, one of the schools might be a 7A powerhouse program. And we also have a 2A school that has 200 kids 
9 through 12. And so it's like, yeah, this school really needs it, but they can't without it somehow going here. So I don't I don't know. I think the biggest thing is just getting the message out, getting people wanting to learn um, and seeing like, hey, like you're not relinquishing power. You're going to help your athletes out. And like actually having the coaches there be able to show that there's more success with their athletes than when they're just doing some program from the 90s that somebody did in their high school. Um, I think that is. And then this the, the mantra of, of we have to be mentally tough, I feel like messes a lot of people up because mental toughness can is, is comprised of so many things. It's not just how much pain can you endure from doing something stupid. If that's all it was, I got a lot of mental toughness because so I can endure some stupid stuff. But that's only part of the equation. Like, like, can I do what's expected of me every time regardless of the situation? That says a lot more about mental toughness than can I put my body through crap and try and keep going. Um, so I just think it, it, it it's going to take some time. Hopefully we'll continue to grow. And as we grow, it'll start happening as ra- a little bit more rapidly. Um, but I think just a lot of it's just getting the word out and seeing people see guys like George, um, guys like other people in our state that are doing a great job and myself, like just doing stuff good for athletes and what and how they're different. Like we had one of our two of our girls soccer players, one of their dads, a principal at one of our rivals, um, and her, another girl's dad is a principal at our other one of our other rival schools. And whenever we played them in soccer this year, their parents came up to their principals like, we need a strength coach art our girls are getting pushed around out there and it shouldn't be like that. Like it's not even fair. And so, so like, like also like I, things as silly as that, like we'll, we'll ha- have a payoff at it eventually. Yeah. It just takes time, man. And that's, uh, I think as like you're saying, man, as you get more people, you're seeing the results, it'll, it'll come, it'll come. And, and quite frankly, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of it, the, there's two ways it happens quickly. I feel like it's either from uh, you've got high investment from your colleges and stuff. And it's like, man, we want to get this kind of stuff and it trickles down. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a huge reason why Texas is the way it is. Yeah. And, and uh, a couple other States, but also, you know, unfortunately you get the terrible things that are happening in weight rooms yep. and then now it's a liability issue. And uh, now it's like, okay, I need to get somebody that knows what they're doing. And I think that's, that's, typically kind of what gets the ball rolling in a lot of places Uh, unfortunately if one you know one state something happens and it's like man we gotta we gotta make sure it's covered and it's you can always tell on different places of whether or not they have ever been around a liability issue yeah you know if you're allowing something to happen it's like oh you've actually not had to deal with this before because you know so we're suggesting this he's like that's fine uh, (laughs) it's it's probably not but uh but i digress well cool uh blair do you got anything uh, to close out here buddy uh yeah i think uh my last question for coach rafferty here is uh what are you doing in your own personal training what do you where are you at with that I see, ah, I see so, the rig, rig behind you. So let's hear what you got. I got you. Uh, so, so right now, um, funny you should ask that. Uh, me and uh, another guy that we're Ross is in our old uh, Nutsack Nelson group message. Um, 
which I tried to go the entire episode without actually saying that name, but I, I finally <laughs> broke down and said it. Uh, Blaine uh, Donahoe from uh, from Tennessee, me and him, we've gotten pretty tight. Um, I posted a video the other day of me doing some some speed box squats, uh, some dynamic effort work, and he said, he's like, hey, dude, you want to go full-on conjugate? Like, we can do this together. And I was like, sure, we can do it. So we, we are currently in the midst of um, – getting ready to start next week, a full blown, uh, dynamic effort, max effort, West side esque conjugate type method, uh, for, for at least 12 weeks. I mean, I like to try things out. Usually, usually I'll stick with something triphasic, but I, for the past about previous eight weeks, I was doing, trying out some dynamic max effort pairings and I was enjoying it. I like to change up my program a lot. I get bored easily and I, but I always want to be doing something. And so, when, and so when Blaine was like, Hey, you want to do this together? I was like, yes, I would love to have someone to do something with, to, to write something with, and then to talk crap to about while we're doing it. Yeah. Sign me up. And he was like, all right, let's put it together. I said, cool. So that's what we're about to uh, embark on. So you're wait you're waiting for soccer to finish and then you're gonna hit the conjugate. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. something like that, yeah. Ross, <laughs> Ross and I bonded the most, I think, when we were destroying each other for months at a time. And I think try it. We would trade off like every four weeks. It'd be like, okay, Ross is gonna write this four weeks, Blair has the next one. <laughs> and it was awful. Yeah. It was awful. Uh, but it, you know, it got done. It got done a lot. <laughs> we did learn i learned that 30 second oscillating is not what i want to do i am going to uh i'm going to sneak that into our program just for uh blaine to enjoy with me <laughs> you have to go you've got to go rear foot elevated Ooh. 30 seconds are, are we also going to go with the floating heel and you had to go with the floating heel <laughs> We're just going to get i think the worst was when uh kerr had us doing the five minute isos Every Tuesday. I wasn't around for that, no. thank God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the worst. Every Tuesday and Thursday. Five no. That was ahead of his time, too. Yeah. All right, Raph. Well, man, I appreciate you getting on today, dude. Uh, if anybody, if you're not following Raph, man, follow him on the Twitter. Or, sorry, the X. I'm still going to call it Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Coach Repeat, and that's R-E-P-E-T-E. Uh, on the X and man, if you need somebody to talk to you about med ball work and all things, uh, all things rotational, reach out to Raf. Appreciate it, man. Thank all you. Right, thanks. Enjoyed it.